thank you for downloading our podcast and listening to our Good Friday and Easter sermons. In this series, we consider Christ's death and resurrection from the perspective of a centurion and Christ's disciples. The disciples walked with Christ, saw miracles, but they still failed to perceive Christ in light of a new day. This is contrasted with a centurion, a man who professionally administers death, stands in darkness at Christ's crucifixion, but still perceives Christ's ministry. We are left with a question. Who do we perceive Christ to be? Is he a Christ of our own making? Or do we see him as a suffering to triumphant Savior who is conforming us to his image? We left Good Friday with a centurion uh, who witnessed the crucifixion of Christ Uh, one that should not understand Christ and understand his mission. But yet we were left marveling that the centurion praised God for what had transpired with Christ. We said it wasn't because he was just a callous man or a cruel soldier. It was because he actually perceived or understood the redemptive purpose of Christ and why Christ entered into this world. So I thought this year for Good Friday and Easter, as we talk about these familiar texts for us, or at least I assume uh, they're familiar to us, to look at the profession of Christ from two different views. One hand, Good Friday, we saw the unlikely profession of a professional killer, professional murderer, whatever you want to say about the centurion who kills at the orders of Rome and carried out a crucifixion that he knew was a man that, as he's going along, we noted, was obviously not an insurrectionist. By his fruits, by the way Christ carried himself. And he praised God. Now we join on the road with two men who, for whatever reason, it it seems that, that they're familiar with Christ. The implication is they've gone to Jerusalem for Passover, so... The implication is, as they know the disciples, they're part of at least an inner group, maybe not the the most inner circle, but at least they're they're those who are part of the group that would listen to Christ's teaching. They know where to find the disciples. They know who the disciples are. So these are two men who should understand the significance of Christ. And what do we find? What do the disciples fundamentally profess about Christ. Keep in the back of your mind the irony of the centurion listening to the bantering on the cross. Christ is dying. The thieves are dying next to Christ. And the one turns to Christ and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And how absurd that must sound. If the centurion really was hardened in his sin, would have said, yeah, remember me in your kingdom. I think your kingdom's done in a matter of moments. But yet we find that the centurion saw something about Christ. What do these men perceive? And so as we look at this, we'll kind of go along like we did with Good Friday, where we take note of what's noted, what's happened, you know, what what sort of events have transpired, and what is the ultimate perception? What what do these men fundamentally understand about Christ? And so first, as, as we notice, there's these men who are leaving Jerusalem. They're going to Emmaus. We don't know exactly where this town is, um, 
but some say 22 miles, some say 30 miles. Most likely it's seven miles because they're doing this in a, in a day's journey. Uh, by implication, you get to the end of the narrative. They invite Christ to come in and to eat with them. So the implication is this isn't, you know, 20 some miles, most likely seven miles uh, outside of Jerusalem as they travel. And as we note something in Luke's gospel that I think uh, we can kind of miss, and I think it's significant, they're leaving Jerusalem. And as they leave Jerusalem, Christ is leaving Jerusalem and catches up to these two disciples. We say, well, yeah, Passover's done, that's why they're leaving Jerusalem. But if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, what is the promise that Christ makes? What is the promise we find in the book of Acts? What is the history it records? Well, it records for us that the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. In other words, the gospel of Christ is destined to be more and more Gentile as it goes forth. It's going to the unworthy Gentiles, the nations. That's why it's significant to have a contrast between the centurion's profession and these two disciples. And so as these two disciples are walking and Christ catches up to them, Christ asks them, you know, what, what are you guys talking about? What's going on? And Christ himself has already laid out the fate of Jerusalem. So he turns his face to Jerusalem, 9 verse 51. He says in the context of chapter 9, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets. And Christ knows as one who fulfills and confirms the word of God, the incarnate mystery using Paul's language, the Apostle Paul, where what was unknown is something that comes to be known, not in some sort of a Gnostic sense, but in the true manifestation of the promises of God entering history. So as Christ enters history, he's confirming the redemptive promises. His death is not accidental. We learn that with the centurion praising God because he knows that this man is here fulfilling the divine mission. And so as these men are traveling, they're not discussing the prophets. They're not discussing the implications of the servant songs. Remember we read from Isaiah 53, the fourth servant song of where our sins, he takes his, our sins upon him. He's beaten beyond human semblance. Basically, he's, he's beaten to a pulp, and he does this for our redemption. They're not talking about those things. As they leave Jerusalem, they're perplexed because there's a stranger. It's really kind of comical in Luke's gospel. Christ, the incarnate fulfillment of God's promises, they view as a stranger to the prophets and the promises of God. I mean, truly, this is something that, that almost makes you laugh as you read this. Just, do you not understand who joins you? But nevertheless, they're not talking about the prophets. They're not talking about the servant songs. They're not talking about the implications of Adam and Eve. As Christ asks a question that sort of triggers what we heard in Genesis 3, something that they, they should maybe echo back and think about. Because when, when we have the angel of the Lord, most likely pre-incarnate Christ, going into the Garden of Eden, 
asking Adam and Eve, what have you done? Well, it's not that God's ignorant. He's not naive as to what has transpired. He wants to hear it from them. You know, we've said it before. It's, you look at the child's got chocolate all over his face, cookie jars smashed on the floor. And you say, did you have a cookie? Well, you, you know the evidence is quite evident who had the cookie. But you want to know, is the child going to be square with me and tell me the truth? Or is this child going to lie? Let, let's see what kind of lesson we're going to have here. And so when Christ joins these men, he says, what, what are you talking about? What's this conversation? Christ isn't ignorant. But he wants to know, what do you perceive as the Messiah's mission? What is the mission of the Christ? What, what, what do you believe? What do you understand from the prophets. We find one of the men, Clopas, we, we don't know exactly who he is. It's possible he may be the husband of one of the Marys uh, recorded for us in John 19, uh, verse 25. It's a different spelling, so we don't know. The spelling doesn't necessarily mean it's not the same guy. Uh, but, but the reality is we, we don't know exactly who he is. Implication is Jesus probably knows. The disciples clearly know is this man sought out the disciples and interacted with them, and they were obviously vulnerable enough to say, hey, the Lord's risen uh, when they're hiding out in a locked room. So nevertheless, this individual Clopas, he's named, we don't know exactly who he is, but he is a disciple of Christ, at least he's heard some of Christ's teaching. And as he interacts with Christ, he's shocked. The stranger, you know, Christ is the one who mentions the truth of the kingdom, because this word for stranger is something that's unknown that becomes known. And so Christ speaks of basically how he's the one who's a manifestation of what is coming to be known as, as the intention of God. And so th this is why that question becomes rather comical and, and funny. They're turning to Christ and saying, do you know what is unknown? <laughs> and Christ is like saying, yeah, I'm the incarnation of it. I am the fulfillment of what was promised. And so one wonders, at least I wonder, maybe not one, but just me, how Christ can, can stay so composed at, at this point without at least chuckling, at least smirking. Well, maybe that's just more of my personality. I don't know. But I would certainly be smirking at this point and kind of chuckling, like, do you not understand the mission of Christ? But nevertheless, they have no understanding. They, there, there's no uh, display or, or tell on Christ that, that Christ is one who is aware of his mission. I mean, Christ truly is, by, by implication of this, holding the best poker face that one can hold. They, they're 100% persuaded that Christ has no clue as to what has happened. And so he's taken back. And, and he says, you, you don't know about these things? Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know about these things? Now think about this. Do you really think all the Gentiles care that some messianic figure stood up and said, I'm a king, and they crucified him? The Gentiles are going about their business. But nevertheless, they're, they're assuming that Christ is at most just another observer of Passover, just another one on a pilgrimage, another one of the Jewish folk fulfilling their mission and the requirements of their religion. And so they're, they're assuming he's one of them. But in their assumption, they, they assume he's 100% ignorant. That he doesn't know what is unknown. And he's one who truly needs to be enlightened. 
And so, as I ask this and Christ says, you know, what things? That these men are ones who ironically think Christ has not perceived truth. When they don't understand, they're staring truth right in the eye. Interacting with the essence of truth, the, the incarnation of truth, the essence of God and the fulfillment of his redemptive promises right here on the road. And so we, we kind of know the, the timeline. We understand they're leaving. We, we see the projection of going away from Jerusalem, the, the word of God traveling away from Jerusalem, going to the nation, sort of being projected here. But what is their, their fundamental understanding of what has happened? What, what do they fully think has transpired? Well, as we look at this, and, and we learn from Good Friday, the centurion is the one who perceives Christ. And the significance of that is the centurions in darkness. Remember we said the apocalyptic type darkness. This, this darkness associated with the day of the Lord, God's judgment, uh, these sorts of themes that, that we find in the prophets. And he clearly perceives who Christ is. The irony is these men are on the dawn of a new day. They should be enlightened. They're in the light, right? So you have these subtleties in Luke's narrative setting the contrast of these two men. The one in darkness sees light. The one in light should see the light, but they're not perceiving it. And so as they journey along, they start retelling the story and how they understand the events as they have transpired. So they identify this Jesus of Nazareth. So they, they know where Jesus is from. And that's important because Nazareth, as you find, is something that's Offensive to some, but, but they're not offended by that. It doesn't bother them. They understand the designation of this individual. They said he had a word and, and did miracles or signs, and that certainly testified to his power. And so when you think about this in, in light of Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, the Lord will raise up a prophet like unto me, uh, if his word comes true, you should fear the man. But if his word does not come true, don't fear him. He's not a true prophet. And so they're affirming, based upon the test of Moses, this man had credibility. He wasn't just a man. They, they, they say there's, there's something about him that we knew was unique. We knew he, he was at least a prophet sent from God. So he brought the word of God from heaven to this earth. We, we, we know that. We're certain of that. But yet we find that there's something else. As he's mighty in word and deed. Uh, he's one who's before God and the people, as they say in verse 19. But going on, we find the fundamental problem with their Christ. We find that the problem in verse 20 is that he's only, in their estimation, I, this is not my estimation or my profession, but in their estimation in verse 20, he's not the Christ. And the reason is because he was so easily silenced by the chief priests and by the rulers. Now what's interesting here is they're not blaming Pilate. They're rightly understanding what we saw on Good Friday. Remember on Good Friday, Pilate delivered him over. In other words, Pilate didn't release him. Pilate didn't condemn him. Pilate just sort of took the cowardly way out and saying, I don't want to riot. I think he's innocent, 
but I don't want to riot, so I'll just hand him over to you guys, and you guys do with him what you want. So the disciples are correct, or Cleopas and his friend as a journey. They're correct. The chief priests, the rulers of the people, delivered Christ over to him, or to, uh, uh, to be crucified and to face death. Not to the Gentiles. It wasn't Pilate who's a bad guy. Their understanding is their leaders that did this. And so, as they have this, we, 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 we know this, this is not good. We, we know that this is the very uh, individuals who should understand the significance of Christ. And as they understand the significance of Christ, they should embrace the Messiah. But they sent him to death. Now notice where we find their ultimate perplexity. So it's not just that he's handed over, but they said that he would redeem Israel. So this is an important point because now we're getting at the issue, okay, what do you understand about redeem Israel? So clearly, for the disciples, an innocent man being handed over to death is not what is necessary to redeem Israel. The implication is what is necessary to redeem Israel is to throw off Roman authority. In other words, we want our Messiah to sit upon the throne of David. We want him to bring in the glorious kingdom. We thought at Passover we were going to have this wonderful time where finally we're in the full glory of what was promised of David. That didn't happen. We have our definition. You didn't measure up to this definition. Therefore, this Christ failed to redeem Israel. So that's their commentary. This prophet who is mighty in word and deed is not the redeemer because he died and we are not delivered from Rome. So that's their definition. That's what they expect the Messiah to do. They go on now and they say, now there's these strange perplexing reports. There's these women that, that say he's been raised and they've seen some vision of angels. I, I don't know. This is what they say. This is what some of the disciples said. It seems that it may be true. We don't know what to make of this. Somehow there's a resurrection. Don't really understand the significance of it. Don't really know why this needs to happen. So there's no understanding even in terms of Luke's gospel and, and the, the ministry of Christ. The Song of Mary. A song that celebrates how the Lord is the one who triumphs over the strong. How he shows his strength and humility. Echoing what you find in Exodus 15, the song of Moses, Mary once again. Echoing back to that, showing the strength of God. You should think about this. The angels in heaven. The angelic army. I mean, that is a show of force. That is a show of force that you cannot understand. Mighty shepherds. You know, men who camp out at night, sleep under the stars, are not scared of wild animals, are those who cower when they see the angelic army. And what do they say? The, the Lord's coming, Hosanna in the highest, is going to establish peace over the earth. His true shalom will be accomplished. They should know from that moment that the mission of the Messiah is not to come, enter history, make war to throw off Rome. That could have been done. At the opening of the gospel, that wasn't done. This shalom, this peace, this redemption comes through another means. And so what is a contrasting perception then? What, 
what's going on here? Well, we have the disciples being disappointed because in their mind, they know the mission of the Messiah. And in their mind, the mission of the Messiah does not measure up to their mission. Therefore, Christ has failed. And that's what's going on. This is what Christ wants them to lay out, wants them to spell this out. And they do. And Christ responds in very strong language in verse 25, where he calls them foolish ones. In other words, ignorant ones, ones outside of, of, of the covenant community, basically, saying, oh, you apostate ones. It's sort of another way of saying this. I mean, this isn't very nice if here you are as a disciple and you have this other guy join you and he hardly knows you and he says, oh, you're a foolish individual. You don't know anything. Kind of want to say, excuse me? Uh, you can walk on your own path now. Have a good day, right? But he says, so slow to understand, not understanding all of what was in the prophets. Now, when Christ explains this, we don't know what exact prophets he's referring to. Some people debate. Some people say, oh, he's laying out this passage or that passage. But, but to say that is sort of splitting hairs and not understanding the intention of the Old Testament. Because the intention of God, and why I wanted to start at Genesis 3, the intention of God is to establish the eternal rest for his people. Israel models this in a land. But the one who brings it has to be the Messiah. The Messiah has to establish it because we see Israel outside the land. Here they are in exile, even by their own affirmation. Rome's in control over us. We're not free. We want to be free. And so the promise of Genesis 3 is the Lord saying, I'm going to come and take away sin. Sacrifices an animal, covers them with skin, certainly predicting the coming of Christ. Also, we see the care of God and his providence giving them clothes fit to function and work in the context of the common curse. And so as Christ is going through the prophets, he's laying out for them, do you not understand the significance of the messianic mission? And how the, Mess how the Messiah is to come, he is to die, and he is to be raised up. I mean, Isaiah 53, why I wanted to read it on Good Friday, was very much for that purpose. I mean, there is so many parallels as to what's going on in terms of the crucifixion of Christ. And so as Christ is laying this out, he also tells them, what about what I've said? Haven't I told you? There's Luke 18 where he says, he's going to be handed over to wicked men and the third day is going to be raised from the dead. It's not the only occurrence of it. This is what Christ has said about the messianic mission. He is conscious when he turns his face to Jerusalem, he says the city that kills its prophets, he's the one who's going to undergo the same fate. He will die, but he will be raised. When we look at this narrative, as these men consider this and walk with Christ, as we considered it on Good Friday, we saw how the Gentile praises God in the miscarriage of justice. Remember, we said it's not because he's one who values injustice in Rome. It's because it clicked. By the grace of God, he understood who this Christ was, why he had to die, why he had to die the type of death he died. This is why he praised God. He didn't praise Rome. He didn't praise Pilate. 
he prays God. These disciples who should know better, that they are those who do not see until the Lord enlightens them, and then they see, in 24 verse 31. But immediately their eyes are opened, the blindness is removed, and they perceive who the Messiah is. And the fundamental thing that is important for us to take home with us is it's not that they just learned something new, but something clicked. They understood that they needed to be informed by the Lord by the word of God, by his canonical word, by his authority, by what he has promised. They need to be informed by that. And they can't take their convictions, hammer it on the word of God, and make the word of God conform to their expectations. And once they understand the manifestation of God's promise, it clicks. They understand by the grace of God why the Messiah needs to come, and he needs to conquer and why the gospel goes to the nations. What a glorious day this is when Christ is raised from the dead. Because on this day, the promises of God are certainly yes and amen, and and they should be yes and amen for us. But they are yes and amen in the sense that all what the prophets have said have been confirmed. His will cannot be annulled. The end of history is set in motion. It is guaranteed. And as we take hold of Christ by faith, we are guaranteed and assured he is our Christ. He is our Lord. He is our Redeemer. And so when we return to that question where we began, what do the disciples profess about Christ? Well, initially, they want Christ to conform to their identity and image of a Messiah. Because Christ doesn't conform to their definition and image of a Messiah, in their mind, he's a false Christ. He's a false Messiah, maybe a prophet, but not the one to redeem. When they're instructed and informed by the grace of God and truly perceive what God has defined as a Messiah, then they understand the problem is not with God. The problem is not with Christ. The problems with them. Let us then be a people that as we sojourn under the sun, that we find our life secured in this Christ as we walk by faith. And be assured that as we take hold of him by faith, that the redemptive promise, the redemptive mercy, the resurrection power is ours by his grace and by his mercy. Let us then not miss the kingdom of God as our God defines it. Let us be informed by his kingdom and let us set up our priorities and our values in terms of his kingdom as his redeemed people. Amen. Thank you for subscribing and listening to our podcast. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace 
be upon you.